1996, Malcolm Gladwell was just another columnist writing for The New Yorker. In 1996, Malcolm Gladwell was not yet a household name. That didn't happen until his essay, The Tipping Point, went viral. Gladwell's now famous essay that inspired his book by the same name discussed New York City's now debunked stopped and frisked policy, a practice that at the time Gladwell called miraculous. In his essay, Gladwell argued there was a clear correlation, a clear connection between the New York City police coming down hard on petty criminals like graffiti artists and fair dodgers. There was a connection between that and the city's sudden decline in its murder rate. A strange and unprecedented transformation is happening across New York City, Gladwell wrote. There used to be volleys of gunfire. Now there were ordinary people on the streets at dusk, small children riding their bicycles, old people on benches, people coming out of the subways alone. Sometimes, he wrote, the most modest of changes can bring about enormous effects. Gladwell's essay, The Tipping Point, was a sensation. Almost instantly, he became the marketing tool for broken, broken windows policing, where police officers would stop and frisk any suspicious person in the belief that doing so would greatly reduce more violent crimes. There was only one problem with Malcolm Gladwell's conclusion. He was completely and utterly wrong. Subsequent data has revealed that violent crime has been dropping in New York City for five years, had been dropping for five years before broken windows policing was implemented by the New York City police. In fact, it was plummeting, violent crime was plummeting at the same rate all over our country. This included other big cities where war had not been declared on fair dodgers and graffiti artists. A couple of years ago, when an interviewer brought up the topic of stop and frisk and broken windows policing, a pained, remorseful look crossed Malcolm Gladwell's face. And this is what he said. I was too in love with the broken windows notion. I was so enamored by its metaphorical simplicity that I overstated its importance. In today's passage from 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is in a tough spot. His relationship with the church in Corinth is strained. He and his companions are being, quote, crushed, driven to despair, persecuted, and struck down. And his suffering is making some other people wonder if Paul really is an apostle. Paul's credentials, in a sense, are being questioned by other more successful, less suffering ministers of the gospel. Surprisingly, in today's passage, in response to concerns about his ministry, Paul does not shy away from sharing his struggles. In fact, he seems determined to make it clear to those in Corinth and to his adversaries that suffering and struggle and tribulation are par for the course, even for those who follow Jesus. When the current or trajectory of our life suddenly shifts, when our fortunes are altered by a difficult diagnosis 
or an unforeseen tragedy, when someone or something we trust and lean on fails us, it is very tempting for us to conclude that God has left the building, that God has forgotten our struggles, that God is punishing us in some way. Because sometimes, if we're honest, when faced with our slight momentary affliction, it can be really, really hard to see the hand of God at work. So when you find yourself in a difficult situation, when your circumstances have shifted, where do you look for hope? How do you know, how do you convince yourself that God has your back when all the evidence seems to point to the contrary? Well, if you're like every other person on this planet, your first move is likely to look more intently, more focused for the fingerprints of God in your life for some tangible sign of God's presence, a a bird flying overhead, a phone call from a friend, a gentle breeze, for some silver lining that can help you understand God's plan. The trouble is, sometimes there is no explanation for what is happening to us. Sometimes there are forces at work beyond our control. Sometimes bad things just happen. And looking for answers as to why, looking for the simple answer as to why, if we're not careful, can obscure a greater truth. The hardest funeral service I ever officiated was for a three-day-old baby named Ronan. It was only my second funeral as a pastor. The other pastor was out of town. Ronan's parents were all in their mid-twenties. As we sat down in my office, all of us terrified, as we set to plan their service, they told me that this would be the first funeral they had ever been to, the funeral of their three-day-old son. Somehow I muddled through that God's spirit, helped me through it, but after that first conversation, I called a good friend, a good colleague, hoping beyond hope that she would have words that I could speak at the service that would make a difference, hoping that she could somehow help me navigate a way through this difficult time. Her advice to me was simple, but it was powerful. She told me to open the service by stating a simple truth. We shouldn't be here today. This is not part of God's plan. This is not what God wanted for you or for Ronan. After doing that, she encouraged me to spend the rest of the service talking about God and what God is doing, has done, and will do for all of us. Talk about God building every one of us a heavenly home. She knew me, so she reinforced the point, Derek, don't try to explain what happened. Simply point to the promise of God, who is doing more than we can see. That will be enough. So how often in a typical week do you think about heaven, about your eternal home? In my experience, that most of us don't contemplate heaven until a life, our life or a life of someone we love, nears its end. 
We don't give eternal life too much thought until our backs are up against the wall, which is too bad, really, because whenever Jesus talks about heaven, he talks about a present, eternal, intense, real experience of joy and of peace that he says is available to us here and now. For Jesus, heaven wasn't just someday. That was part of it. But it was also a promise meant to encourage us when our suffering on this side of glory is too real to avoid and too painful to understand. My point is there are times when looking for the fingerprints of God is helpful. There are times when an answered prayer or an unexpected blessing or a miracle reveals to us and to others God's mercy and grace. There are times when it makes sense to consider what God is doing in the moment you find yourselves in. But sometimes when the sickness does not go away, when the relationship does not mend, when the job does not come, sometimes the faithful response is not to look for a silver lining. Sometimes the most faithful thing we can do in the face of suffering is to acknowledge that even though there is nothing we can do to change it or explain it, there is more to the story than meets the eye. Sometimes the most faithful thing we can do in the face of trials and tribulations is to believe that God is doing something amazing just beyond what we can see. Tony Dungy was one of the most successful coaches in NFL history. But long before he was a household name, Tony Dungy was just another assistant coach hoping to be a head coach in the NFL. He finally got his chance in 1996 when he became the head coach of the worst team in league history, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. At his first meeting with his players, he sat them down and said, here's my strategy. I'm going to make things so simple that you don't think when you're out in the field. We're going to refine our habits so precisely that your performance on the field will be automatic. Ironically, it was Dungy's strident belief in the simple system of habit formation that kept him all this time from getting an NFL head coaching job. Few believed that it would really work. Well, it did work. His formula of simplicity and repetition worked in Tampa Bay. After only a few years, the Bucks tossed aside their loser image. Hope is real. <laughs> but a fascinating thing happened as they became an NFL powerhouse. A troubling pattern emerged. During crucial, high-stress moments, everything would fall apart. For three consecutive years, from 1999 to 2001, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers got destroyed, destroyed in the conference championship game. In an interview after the fact, Dungy reflected on the streak. We would practice, he said, and everything would come together. And then we'd get to a big game, and it was like the training, poof, disappeared. Afterwards, my players would say, well, it was a critical play, and I went back to what I knew, or I felt like I had to step it up. What they were really saying, he said, was that they trusted our system most of the time. But when everything was on the line, that belief broke down. Dungey was fired. Three losses in the conference championship game were enough to save his job. But he quickly got another job with the Indianapolis Colts. And, of course, the same pattern emerged. 
For four seasons, the Colts were one of the best teams in football, and for four seasons, they would fall apart in the big game. In 2006, at the conclusion of yet another successful season, the Colts found themselves once again in the conference championship game, a game that Dungy had lost eight times before. Not surprisingly, the first half didn't go very well. Dungy's players were playing tight, and by halftime, the New England Patriots led 21-3. No team in history had ever overcome so big a deficit. Dungy's team, once again, was going to lose. But much to everyone's surprise, however, the Colts came out in the second half and played some pretty good football. They played with poise and a sense of calm as they scored touchdown after touchdown. With 60 seconds remaining in the game, after a perfect pass by Peyton Manning, the Colts took the lead 38-34. As he had done so many times before with deflated footballs, Patriots star quarterback Tom Brady <laughs> moved his team down the field as he does methodically. And with seven seconds left, Brady stepped back for a pass to a wide open receiver downfield. But as he stepped back for the pass, something amazing happened that none of us saw. Colts cornerback Marlon Jackson at that moment held on to his belief in Tony Dungy's system. Instead of trying to do too much to make a play, he watched for the cues that he had been taught and reacted in the way he had been trained. And because of his unwavering belief, at that critical moment, Tom Brady did not complete a pass to win a game. Instead, a no-name cornerback was at the right place at the right time and intercepted the ball. The whole play had taken less than five seconds. The game was over. Dungy and the Colts finally won. And two weeks later, they won the Super Bowl. They had finally come to believe. The remarkable thing about Paul's correspondence to the church in Corinth is that even though all the evidence seemed to indicate to him that God had abandoned him, Paul chose not to believe that to be the case. Instead, he found strength in his belief that this slight momentary affliction was preparing him for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. When we are at a loss to explain what is happening to us, there is a power accessible to us that does not come from us. When we're at a loss to explain that the afflictions that befall us or those we love, there is strength to be found in holding on to the belief that whatever happens in that situation, our lives are still in God's hands. When we've lost two superstars and are facing an insurmountable foe, there is still hope just over the horizon. I know it's silly. There's no way the Cavs can win. There's no way we can overcome an insurmountable struggle. It's silly to have false hope. It's silly to believe in something we cannot see. No, it's not. Because whenever we look to what cannot be seen, whenever we cling to what God is doing for us on our behalf, far beyond what our eyes can see, Whenever we remember that God is building for us a heavenly home, eternal in the heavens, not made with these hands. Whenever we do that, we reinforce the belief that is the foundation 
of our faith. Our life, your life, my life are all part of a bigger story, a much bigger story, a story that begins and ends in the arms of a God who loves us, sustains us, and we believe at the end of it all brings us home. Amen.